Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, from 1987. Written by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Frank Darabont, and Chuck Russell, and directed by Chuck Russell. And that profusion of writers is a good place to start, because this was Wes Craven's return to the franchise he reluctantly created after refusing to come back for part two. He never intended the original film to have any sequels, and he wasn't pleased with the story for Freddy's Revenge, and when it turned out that his complaints about killer parakeets and an unsatisfying Freddy in the real world climax were echoed by critics, New Line Cinema made a concerted effort to court him to do the third movie and get the series back on track. But Craven was already contractually obligated to direct the movie Deadly Friend, and if you've ever seen the infamous gif of a woman being killed by a basketball to the head, you may suspect he bet on the wrong horse there, but that film had its own share of studio interference and wound up something very different than he originally intended. But that's a story for another time. Craven instead wrote a screenplay and agreed to serve as producer on the project. His original concept, which involved Freddy's old house becoming a portal to the world of dreams that attracted people to kill themselves nearby it and thus feed Freddy's power, was a little too dark and profane and controversial for New Line, and they brought on Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont to do some rewrites. Now, I know you're probably thinking of this as a situation where a famous screenwriter was brought in to polish up a script that wasn't working, but this isn't the Frank Darabont who did The Mist, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Walking Dead. This is the Frank Darabont who was Chuck Russell's buddy, and Chuck Russell was the guy who'd written the screenplay for 1984's Dreamscape, also a movie about going into people's dreams and fighting their nightmares, and also a movie where if you die in your dreams, you die in real life. 1984 was just a big year for that, I guess? Dreamscape put him on New Line's radar, and in this era, when you say New Line, you really mean Bob Shea, because this was back when he was the company and the company was him, and he brought in Chuck Russell to rewrite Craven's script. And Russell brought his friend Frank Darabont to the project, and they made some major changes. How major? Well, for starters, the Dream Warriors in Craven's version weren't related to the mob who killed Freddy because that whole motivation was discarded, wisely, I think, considering the convolutions the next few movies are going to have to go through to get around that restriction, and it was Freddy's old house that was the source of the evil. Nancy wasn't a therapist herself, she was dating the therapist who was working with all these kids who talked about seeing a man in their dreams with knives for fingers, and she inserted herself into the whole scenario, which makes the reluctance of the other doctors to take her seriously a little more believable. Nancy's dad was in the same mental hospital, having attempted to burn down Freddy's house, and the whole thing was pitched much more as a battle between good and evil than a struggle to save a small group of specific teens. And Freddy's origin was vastly different, but we'll get to that later. New Line wanted to get Dreamscape's director, Joseph Rubin, on board as well, but he was signed on to the movie The Stepfather, and he told Bob Shea he thought Russell was ready to step into the big chair, which he might honestly have been on a regular production, but Dream Warriors was an ambitious script with a large cast and a number of complex special effects sequences, and, to be frank, a meddling and intrusive producer. 
Russell fell behind schedule almost immediately, and by all accounts he took a lot of his frustrations with the tense atmosphere and the micromanagement of Bob Shea out on the cast. One notorious incident involved Patricia Arquette's first day of shooting, because the production was already so far behind they didn't get to her scenes until 4am, by which point exhaustion and frustration had made it impossible for her to remember her lines. Rather than break until the next day, Russell made her do 52 takes of the scene before finally resorting to cue cards, and that set the tone for their interaction for the rest of the shoot. To this day, Arquette refuses to even discuss her time with the franchise, and she did not reprise her role for Part 4. Nonetheless, the movie got done, and Arquette certainly hasn't been hurting for work. She was in the movie that kick-started Quentin Tarantino's career, the crime drama True Romance, and in the films Ed Wood, Lost Highway, Stigmata, and Holes, among others. But she's probably best known for her television work, with a lengthy run on the shows Medium and CSI Cyber, as well as a recent appearance on the critical darling Severance. And yes, if you're wondering, she is related to David Arquette from the Scream series. Their brother and sister, and in fact the whole family, went into acting to various degrees of success. Her sister Rosanna was in Pulp Fiction. The other Elm Street kids, and buckle up because this is a big cast, are Kincaid, played by Ken Sagos, Joey, played by Rodney Eastman, Taryn, played by Jennifer Rubin, Philip, played by Bradley Gregg, and Will, played by Ira Hyden. It's never really explained where any of these kids were in the original Nightmare on Elm Street, or why nobody connected them to the events of that movie. It's just treated as sort of, oh what, Elm Street kids? Yeah, I think we got a few more. Let me check in the back. Sagos is mostly known for his stage work, but he has made a few appearances on film and television, most notably in the 1997 movie Rosewood, although I'll always remember him as the cosplayer on Night Court who was dressed as Jordy LaForge and who beamed himself out of the courtroom rather than face charges for an altercation with some classic Trek fans, and he's also written a couple of screenplays. Eastman, meanwhile, has been a day player and guest star on a number of TV shows from Highway to Heaven all the way up through NCIS Los Angeles, with a few parts on genre shows like Millennium and Babylon 5, and in genre movies like the remake of I Spit on Your Grave to his name. While Jennifer Rubin got her start in modeling, she was the original face of the classic Obsession ad campaign for Calvin Klein, and decided to move into acting with this film. She's gone on to have a number of genre roles, including 1995 Screamers, the TV remake of The Wasp Woman, The Crush, and Bad Dreams, one of the very few movies to deliberately tread into Freddy's Deadly Dreams subgenre, and most recently the 2022 film You're Melting, which seems to be blatant false advertising given how few audience members are in fact melting. Bradley Gregg had already made a couple of appearances on film and television when he first played Philip. He was in Explorers with River Phoenix, as well as Stand By Me with River Phoenix, and later he appeared in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, also with River Phoenix. It would be an understatement to say that Phoenix's death hit him hard. Like many actors of that era, he had developed a close friendship with Phoenix, and it was gutting when the young man died tragically from a drug overdose. Greg's since gone on mostly to guest spots and day player parts since then, although genre fans would probably know him both from Class of 1999 and Fire in the Sky. And Will is probably Ira Hyden's signature role, although he was also in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, along with a few guest spots and minor roles here and there. Famously, he was a big tabletop gamer at the time, and he credits his knowledge of Dungeons & Dragons with getting him the part. We'll get to why the whole D&D &D thing is significant, I promise, but we've still got a ton of cast members to get to. 
like Penelope Sudro, whose character Jennifer probably gets the most memorable death of a whole film full of them. Like Hayden, she doesn't have a lot of other roles, but eagle-eyed fans of the 1988 cheese fest Dead Men Walking, whose amazing cast includes Wings Hauser, Brian James, and Jeffrey Combs, might be able to spot her as Pookie, presumably before she died on her way back to her home planet. That covers the kids, but what about the adults? Well, Robert England, Heather Langenkamp, and John Saxon all reprise their respective roles from the original movie, with this film arguably marking the point where England fully embraced his destiny as this generation's Vincent Price. And I mean that as the highest compliment. Like Price, England is effortlessly able to play both campy fun horror and serious intense horror, and arguably he has to switch back and forth between the two in this very movie. Langenkamp, meanwhile, had been working through something of a dry spell in between this movie and the original Nightmare. She'd picked up some guest spots and roles in after-school specials, but she hadn't gotten her regular job on just the ten of us yet that would become such a very real nightmare for her. And of course, John Saxon was never out of work. Added to this ensemble is Craig Wasson, playing Dr. Neil Gordon, Wasson is one of those quintessential guy-with-the-face actors, reliably appearing in everything from The Rockford Files, to Murder, She Wrote, to Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but he also had some more significant roles. He was the lead in Brian De Palma's body double, as well as the movie Ghost Story, and basically he just feels like one of those cultural signifiers that whatever you're watching is unmistakably late 70s or early 80s, even though he kept working long beyond that. His foil in the film, the stern and hectoring Dr. Sims, is played by Priscilla Pointer, who's also very much a famous character actor. She also did a ton of 70s shows like The Rockford Files, Kojak, and Canon, but she has some hefty films on her resume like Carrie, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, The Onion Field, Twilight Zone the Movie, The Falcon and the Snowman, Blue Velvet, and, um, Chud 2, Bud the Chud. Look, different movies are famous for different reasons. Also on staff at Weston Hills is Max the Orderly, played by Lawrence Fishburne back when he was still calling himself Larry and doing guest spots on Pee Wee's Playhouse as Cowboy Curtis to pay the bills. He'd break big about four years later with Boys in the Hood, which would lead to Bad Company, which would lead to Event Horizon, which would lead to the Matrix films, which would turn him into one of those stratospheric actors who had people calling him to give him parts instead of having to audition. It's fun to see him in what was probably at the time just another way to keep his rent checks from bouncing, although you'd never know it from his performance in this movie. Playing the ghost of Freddy's mother, Amanda Krueger, is Nan Martin, who is one of those actors who just kept working and working and working her whole life long. She got her start in 1952 for Schlitz Playhouse, back when a single company could and would pay for a whole TV series, and she kept going almost all the way up to her death in 2010. Even when she was getting old, she wasn't too old to play a patient in a hospital bed in medical dramas, and the list of shows that have at least a guest spot from her is longer than my arm and includes The Original Fugitive, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., and Curb Your Enthusiasm. She was also in Dr. Detroit. Also of note is Brooke Bundy, who plays Kristen's mother, Elaine. She's another TV regular, getting her start on The Donna Reed Show and The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet, and cruising right along through The Man from Uncle and Lassie up to a 174-episode stint on Days of Our Lives. And that's just the 70s. We'll be seeing more of her, I promise. 
And yeah, if you were one of those people who decided Dick Cavett or Zsa Zsa Gabor was safe to put into your betting pool of actors I'd never mention on this podcast, you just lost, because both of them have extremely memorable cameos here. Cavett was of course best known for his role as the erudite and charming host of The Dick Cavett Show, which ran for almost 400 episodes from 1968 to 1986, and most of his other appearances and cameos are related to that fame. Well, Gabor was practically the epitome of the famous-for-being-famous celebrity that would later come to be the province of internet influencers and reality stars. She did have some real acting roles, most notably in 1958's Touch of Evil, but as early as 1967 she was popping up in cameos as the character of Zsa Zsa Gabor in shows like My Three Sons and movies like The Naked Gun Two and a Half. It was a character she inhabited for numerous talk show appearances, telethons, game shows, and celebrity roasts, and it eventually eclipsed her actual performances and even to some degree her real life entirely. Those performances include Frankenstein's great-aunt Tilly with Donald Pleasance. That's twice that's popped up now. That's the whole enormous cast, but before we begin, a brief trigger warning. Although this movie doesn't really treat any of its topics with any kind of real seriousness or gravity, we do, and there are discussions of self-harm, death by suicide, drug addiction, and rape that we have to go through if we want to treat the film's subject matter with the justice it deserves. If these topics upset you, this would be a good time to take a break from the episode until you're ready to handle them. And remember, you can always call 988 for free mental health crisis assistance. And with that taken care of, we are finally ready to begin. Starting with a quote. Sleep, those little slices of death. How I loathe them. Attributed here to Edgar Allan Poe, but more accurately belonging to the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1959 probably an in-joke by Russell and Darabont, both of whom are big 50s sci-fi fans, but one that's resulted in the line being so inextricably associated with Poe that even Google says it's from him. We then get the opening credits, which play out over what turns out to be Kristen doing a little craft project in her bedroom to stay awake. She's making a miniature version of Nancy's house from the original Nightmare, and one of the things I think is so genuinely fascinating about this film is the way it uses a very few pieces of recognizable imagery to form a through-line to make this film feel like a return to form, even though it's actually a total reinvention of the entire franchise. Because it really is. The first film was a tightly focused character drama, centering on Nancy and her group of friends as they worked their way through a painfully interwoven nexus of repressed memories, childhood trauma, and emotionally distant parenting while being stalked by a killer. There are very few deaths, only three teens and Marge at the very end, and much of the emphasis is on how powerless we are in our dreams and how the only way to defeat our fears is to bring them out into the light of reality and take their power away from them. Freddy is a very human monster, despite his supernatural attributes. He was an ordinary man in life, a serial killer who was never anything special save for the harm he caused. And although a lot of the film takes place at Nancy's house, there's never anything important about it beyond its status as the place where the protagonist lives. Whereas this movie... okay, not to spoil, 
but the body count is almost double. The characterization is much more typical of a late-period Friday the 13th movie where everyone is given one or two cartoonishly obvious personality traits to make them stand out from one another but are otherwise interchangeable victims. The generational trauma is almost entirely discarded in favor of cool and visually interesting death scenes. Everybody shares dreams and has dream superpowers that let them get in a few licks before they die. Freddy is now an overtly campy figure with an over-the-top Grand Guignol origin story, and the solution to the whole problem is Jesus. And Nancy's house is now Freddy's home. It's a completely different model of storytelling. And yet, because we get Nancy back, because we get John Saxon back, because Freddy's once again killing the Elm Street kids in their dreams, and because we keep the action centered on Nancy's house, which was the setting for part two, all the structural changes kind of fade into the background compared to those big hits of nostalgia that part two didn't give the audience. I have to admit, that's a very clever way to shift the narrative, and the response this film got makes it unsurprising that this is going to be the model for the movies going forward, in a way that it's kind of shocking to say the original film isn't. Just to make it clear that Kristen's trying to stay awake, she eats instant coffee by the spoonful and washes it down with Diet Coke while blasting heavy metal music. By the band Dokken, who we'll get back to later. Heavy metal and horror are by now so inextricably associated that it's almost difficult to think of this as a specific choice. But this was one of the earliest movies to use a heavy metal soundtrack, and Craven included it as a deliberate character detail. Not the specific band, but the idea of everybody listening to heavy metal. If 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street was a commentary on the way recovered memories of ritual satanic abuse were bubbling to the surface in a whole generation of teens and young adults, Dream Warriors is very much intended as a look at the way teens and young adults were simply punished for their coping mechanisms rather than being listened to and respected. Almost all the characters in this movie have some form of stigmatized behavior, from drug addiction to heavy metal music to an interest in Dungeons and Dragons. And Craven definitely intended the responses of the adults to be emblematic of an era when everyone thought the solution was just to ban everything they didn't like and slap down the kids who expressed interest in it. I vividly remember both the intense social stigma placed on heavy metal fans by the teachers in our school and the fear around Dungeons and Dragons. The lone attempt to start a D&D club literally lasted in less than an hour from the initial announcement to the principal stepping in to cancel it. This is all a legacy of the initial Craven script, and Darabont and Russell were specifically instructed to tone it down precisely because it was saying something extremely controversial and real. Kristen's attempts to stay awake are interrupted by her mother, who's less interested in her daughter's nightmares than in the man she brought home for drinks. This was also a minor theme in the original movie with Tina's mom, but it's played far less subtly here. We're clearly meant to understand that it's okay to slut-shame a single mother because having a romantic life automatically equates to neglecting her responsibility as mommy. I didn't like it in the first movie, and I like it even less here where Elaine is a mommy dearest level caricature. But she nonetheless gets her daughter to sleep, leading us into our first nightmare sequence where Kristen finds herself outside the abandoned house she was building earlier with a bunch of creepy kids jump roping in slow motion in the front yard and singing the Freddy skipping song. And like a lot of horror sequels, this is the point where the filmmakers have enough data points to really pick up on what the audience wants more of and start giving it to them in abundance. 
For the Freddy movies, that's big, flashy, surrealistic set-piece dream sequences, and we're going to start ladling them on thick from here on out pretty much for the rest of the franchise until Wes Craven comes back to course correct. In this case, one of the little girls goes into the creepy old house, and Kristen chases her down into the basement where she finds an old boiler burning with flames and human remains. This all made a lot more sense when you remember that in the original screenplay, this was going to be Fred Krueger's house and not Nancy's. Kristen scoops up the kid and tries to flee with her, but she finds herself running in place. It's slightly more convincing than Tina's similar dream in part one, but not by much. And when she finally gets away from the knife-gloved man chasing her, she looks down to realize she's carrying a tiny child skeleton instead of a person. Apparently Mark Showstrom, who returns along with Kevin Yeager from Part 2, spent a lot of time working on a terrifyingly realistic child corpse that looked appropriately desiccated and mummified, only to be told that no, that was too scary. So he just slapped a wig on a skeleton and called it good. Kristen wakes up, terrified. But we're about to get that old staple, the double dream sequence, and when she goes to splash some cold water on her face, the sink tap becomes a hand that grabs her. The other tap grows knives that slash at her wrist, but when she genuinely does wake up, with her mom Elaine busting into the bathroom to find out what's going on, she finds herself holding a razor blade in one hand while her other wrist drips with blood. Which is, frankly, just cheating, because we've seen in all the other Elm Street movies that what you do in your dreams is what your body is doing in real life, and characters don't injure themselves without realizing it, they are injured by Freddy. But this isn't a subtle movie, and the filmmakers don't trust the audience to think for themselves. So Kristen has to be holding a razor blade, because otherwise how would we understand that her mom thinks this was a suicide attempt? It's even weirder because, again, Craven's original script was a lot heavier in this aspect, and they specifically toned down all the suicide conversation to make it more explicit that Freddy was killing the kids rather than them killing themselves. So I don't know why they added a magical razor blade out of nowhere when we all know the cuts came from Freddy. We then cut to Weston Hills Psychiatric Hospital, which will be ineffectually coping with Freddy's victims for the next 16 years, where Dr. Neil Gordon is starting his working day. He greets Taryn, who's wandering the halls in a daze and obviously not sleeping, and Jennifer, who's been burning her arms with cigarettes to try to stay awake, and Roland Kincaid, who's been put in solitary for fighting, and holy gods, this has to be the worst institution ever run by the most cartoonishly idiotic medical professionals on the face of the planet. I mean, it's obviously because if this was a real mental hospital, they'd just sedate the kids on the assumption that they were dealing with real-world psychological issues, and Freddy would kill them in their sleep, and the movie wouldn't even get to Act 1, but this does set the tone of campy absurdity early and often. I feel like Priscilla Pointer really gets it. She's happy to chew into the scenery with a crusty old dean persona that wouldn't be out of place in a college sex comedy. Elm Street House, if I catch you in one more unauthorized group dreaming session, you're all going straight onto Thorazine. But I think Wasson's actually trying to play this material serious, and his character comes off a little bit buffoonish as a result. Neil's worried about the new doctor, some hotshot straight out of med school who thinks they know everything just because they wrote some papers that got a lot of attention. But his complaints are interrupted when Kristen is admitted from the hospital and responds to a sedation attempt by grabbing a scalpel, slashing Max, and kicking Neil himself in the balls when he tries to intervene. 
She begins singing the skipping song to herself, desperate and terrified, and Nancy gets a rock star intro when she begins singing along from the doorway, reaching the frightened teen when no one else could. Nancy still got the white streak in her hair, although embarrassingly it's changed sides, and she looks kind of like if Rogue became the new headmaster of the Xavier Academy, which is appropriate because this is going to turn into Freddy Krueger vs. the New Mutants with remarkable haste. Nancy and Kristen instantly trauma bond, and after Kristen calms down, Neil and Nancy go for a walk while he explains to her that he's got a whole group full of teens that are having the same recurring nightmare and a number of associated sleep disorders along with it. He doesn't seem to think this is strange at all, which on the one hand I kind of understand because if this was the real world, you would have to assume that these kids either drew on a common source of inspiration or were communicating with each other in some sort of folie à deux, but all the medical personnel are so utterly blasé about it that it's hard to explain away even a skepticism about the supernatural. They don't make any attempt to get to the root cause of the trauma, which would certainly lead them back to the serial killer who targeted children in their neighborhood when they were young and then suspiciously disappeared right after his acquittal, and it's just like they don't really care about anything but warehousing kids and correcting all their problems with drugs and discipline. Which, yes, was the point of Craven's original story, but they're not presented as callous or indifferent, either. They're just a bunch of caring medical professionals who somehow don't know how to do even the tiniest bit of research or the very basic work of, you know, therapy. Nancy drops her purse as she gets up to go get settled into her new job, and Neil finds a bottle of something called Hypnosil as he helps her gather her scattered belongings. This is going to become a major aspect of the mythos going forward. When she leaves, he spots a mysterious nun who then vanishes into the crowd, and let's just put a pin in that for later, okay? Nancy then meets some more of the patients, Philip, who sleepwalks and makes puppets, and Kincaid, who's African-American and therefore characterized as short-tempered and violent with pretty much no other character traits at all. Needless to say, the screenwriters are not going to be winning any NAACP Image Awards for this movie anytime soon, although it's not like the white characters are given a lot of depth in this one either. This is pretty much the movie that starts the trend of give everyone one positive character trait they can use to fight Freddy, one big and obvious weakness that he can use to destroy them in a vivid and visually imaginative dream sequence, and a name. And nobody except for Nancy really stands out as anything other than a victim. Speaking of, Joey comes out of his room as Nancy goes by. He is mute and horny for one of the nurses. That's literally all you need to know about him. Over at the Parker house, Nancy interviews Elaine, who is comically disinterested in her daughter's mental health and emotional well-being. I would definitely put Brooke Bundy as another one of the actors who really understands how campy and absurd this movie actually is. And when she goes up to get Kristen's things, she's startled to discover a miniature version of her old house sitting on the young woman's desk. Which... Yes, that would be pretty shocking, especially given that Nancy presumably doesn't know about the people who moved into her former home and wound up attacked by a killer parakeet. No, I am not letting this go, and nor should I. Neil, meanwhile, is researching Hypnosil and finds out that it's an experimental medication used to treat sleep disorders involving pattern nightmares by suppressing the dream function. 
I realize the screenwriters are doing this because they need the audience to know, and apparently they don't trust us to follow his dialogue later on in the movie, where he explicitly mentions that's what it's used for, but having a psychiatrist who is currently dealing with a bunch of kids with sleep disorders involving pattern nightmares, who has no idea there's any kind of medication that can help them until he looks it up on floppy disk Google, is another pretty big exhibit in my case that Neil's just really shitty at his job. One of the things I do not like about this movie is the way it feels like it needs to spoon-feed us every plot point one by one. That night, Kristen falls asleep, and we know she's having a nightmare because a tricycle rolls into her room leaving bloody track marks before melting. She runs away, but finds herself in Nancy's old house, and she's then menaced by a whole roast pig on the dining room table that first rots before her eyes and then snaps at her. This was an actual roast pig that they allowed to rot, then swapped out with the fresh one and puppeteered from beneath the table in an apparently very traumatizing scent-based experience for cinematographer Roy H. Wagner. Something vast and serpentine then slithers under the floor and inside the walls, and when it emerges it's a vast, slimy worm with Freddy Krueger's head. It's a dark greenish-brown in color, mainly because when they saw how much it looked like a penis when flesh-toned, they immediately said, Oh, we can't do that. Honestly, I think Wes Craven would have called them all cowards. The Freddy worm wraps its mouth around Kristen's ankles and begins to swallow her, and she calls for Nancy to come and help, and in her own apartment, Nancy, who's getting a little reading done, tries to stand up and winds up falling backward through her own chair and into the house on Elm Street. She takes in the situation, and thinking fast, she grabs a sliver of glass and stabs Freddy with it. And there's a wonderful moment of recognition between the two as Freddy snarls, You. That's really kind of the heart of the whole movie for a lot of fans. The two women escape, and Kristen and Nancy both wake up in their own rooms, with Nancy nursing a very familiar kind of cut on her hand. In Craven's original screenplay, Kristen actually physically moved people into the dreamscape and they popped out wherever she was when they woke up, which is a really interesting concept that unfortunately would have been messy and confusing to realize, I think. The next day, Nancy goes to Kristen and talks to her about her apparent superpower to merge two people's dreamscapes. They then go to the regularly scheduled group therapy where we meet Will, he uses a wheelchair and likes Dungeons and Dragons, Taryn, she's tough but struggling with a drug addiction, and Jennifer, she's an aspiring actor who watches television. This is all you will find out about any of these characters, and while I understand that's kind of par for the course in a late 80s slasher movie, and honestly on about the same level as anything we saw in Halloween 4 or Friday the 13th Part 7, it's such a steep dip in characterization from the first two installments that I really do feel disappointed in this movie for lowering the bar so much. Say what you will about part two, but we got to spend a lot of time with Jesse and Lisa and Grady, and by the end you really feel like you went on a journey with them. Here, the only one who's got any real depth is Nancy, and most of that is from her appearance in the first movie. Even Kristen, who's the nominal protagonist she's handing off the baton of series regular to, is kind of flat and uninspiring on the page. I like all the actors performing these parts, I think they're all giving a lot, but they don't really have much to work with here, and it shows. Dr. Sims leads the group in a vague, psychobabble Freudian analysis of their problems, basically attributing their simultaneous and highly specific pattern nightmares to quote-unquote guilt over quote-unquote moral conflicts. There are literally fortune cookies that give better help than this. 
After the session, Will plays the We Couldn't Afford to Pay TSR Tabletop RPG Wizard Master with Taryn and Joey, and again, at the time, this would have been every bit as culturally significant a piece of teen rebellion as the heavy metal music. This was 1987, the height of influence for parental activist groups such as Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, and it was legitimately believed that tabletop gaming caused people to go insane and commit suicide. If you ever want to understand just how wild and absurd these beliefs got, watch the TV movie Mazes and Monsters and remember that it wasn't intended as a comedy. It was supposed to be a real, serious look at the hobby. But after the game ends at Lights Out, we see that the kids are watching each other in shifts to make sure they don't die from their nightmares. Which does explain why they haven't died a long time ago, although it still leaves a lot of questions about the overall timeline related to the first movie and Freddy's sudden intrusion into their existence. Then again, the first movie never really answered the why now question, so this isn't exactly an exception. Nancy, meanwhile, tries to bring up the notion of using Hypnosil as a temporary measure to prevent the kids from having said nightmares, but Neil thinks that even she shouldn't be taking it because dot 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 question mark. Okay, in light of what we see in Freddy vs. Jason, where long-term use can cause irreversible coma and death, it makes a little more sense. But in this movie, there's no real reason why let's treat the symptoms so they're not dealing with constant sleep deprivation on top of everything else, then use therapy to get at the root of the problem doesn't sound like a good idea. Neil and Sims are both just here to be convenient obstacles, not real characters. Back at the hospital, both Kincaid and Philip have fallen asleep at the same time, which is obviously bad news for at least one of them. And sure enough, one of Philip's puppets shapes its clay head into Freddy's face before cutting itself down from its own strings and stalking after him. It grows to full size, cutting and yanking out Philip's ligaments to use him as a grotesque marionette. And although this is a really gross and visually vivid scene, it's also deeply annoying, because A, we see in the real world that Philip doesn't have any injuries, so apparently Freddy cutting you in your dream causes real wounds unless Freddy doesn't want it to, in which case it doesn't. B, Kincaid wakes up, sees Philip dragged around by his wrists and ankles, and just ignores it because dot 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 question mark. And C, Philip just walks straight through a locked door at one point, also because dot 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 question mark. In short, this is kind of where the franchise stops giving a fuck about internal logic and just becomes a rule of cool, and while that kind of works here because there is a lot of cool to be had, it's also going to become an increasing problem as writers who aren't Frank Darabont work on the series. Freddy leads Philip up to the top floor and opens a window, then cuts his strings while the other teens watch in horrified dismay as Philip plummets to his death. It winds up looking like Philip died by suicide, and the next day at group, Neil explains to all of them that Philip was a coward who let the group down with his death in his speech that goes beyond, oh gee, all the doctors in this movie are comically bad at their jobs, to being actively unpleasant to watch. I don't know if this actually represented any kind of psychiatric consensus in the 1980s, but it's definitely recognized now as a harmful stigma that prevents people from getting the help they need when they're struggling with depression and looking for anything that feels like a solution. And again, if you're struggling with depression and looking for solutions, you can dial 988 at any time, day or night, to reach someone who can help you find an answer that doesn't involve dying. There is always hope, even when things are at their worst. Dr. Sims decides the solution is mandatory sedation and a 24-hour whatever the opposite of suicide watch is. 
Like, it's clear that she just plans to drug them all into unconsciousness, lock them in their rooms, and let everything sort itself out, which is a solution you only arrive at if you're dealing with budget cuts so bad you can barely keep your doors open. I'd say they're overstretched, but we don't see any other patients, even though you always see something like 20 or 30 staffers in every crowd scene, so I don't know what the fuck is going on here other than authorial fiat. Thankfully, Neil overrules her and prescribes Hypnosil for the kids. Sim's reluctance to go along with the idea and Neil's reluctance to propose it all make a lot more sense in the original screenplay where Nancy isn't a licensed therapist, just Neil's girlfriend and the daughter of a patient at the hospital who's taking the stuff herself and swears by it for her mental health issues. Kincaid gets a night in the quiet room for speaking out and spends it chanting, Ain't gonna sleep no more, while Jennifer sneaks into the common room to watch TV. Taryn gets an offer from one of the nurses, a sleazy guy named Lorenzo, played by Clayton Landy, to get some morphine from the medical supply closet in exchange for non-specific favors, but she tells him to get stuffed and leaves because she's legitimately trying to get clean. But when we cut back to Jennifer, visibly struggling to avoid nodding off, we see her switch to the Dick Cavett show where he's interviewing Zsa Zsa Gabor, and that should be our first sign that something's wrong. Okay, that probably needs a little explanation. Cavett's show was famously intellectual, a real departure from light entertainment series like The Tonight Show, and Cavett couldn't imagine a woman like Gabor that he thought of as fundamentally unserious and unintelligent ever getting any airtime from him. When he was asked who he'd like to be interviewing in this cameo, he suggested her both because he thought that this could only happen in a dream, and because he liked the thought of Zsa getting killed by Freddy, which feels very mean-spirited to me. But on the other hand, Zsa apparently agreed to do it without even reading the script, so it's not like she didn't have a chance to find out what she was getting into. Cavett transforms into Freddy and kills Gabor just before the signal cuts off. She had no idea it was coming, supposedly, and her terrified reaction is a genuine one, and when Jennifer gets up to take a closer look at the TV set mounted high on the wall, it sprouts horrifying mechanical arms that reach out and grab her and lift her up off the floor. Freddy's head emerges from the top of the television, still sprouting the rabbit ears in a wonderfully macabre touch, and he slams her head into the screen as he snarls out, This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV followed by the line, and I reluctantly quote, Welcome to prime time, bitch! About which, three things. First, anyone who says that this is their favorite movie while complaining that in the later installments, Freddy got too overtly comic and relied on hokey dad jokes to turn the kills into punchlines, please rewind this and listen to that one-liner again as many times as you need to in order to understand that this movie is part of the problem, if not its actual source. Second, this was an improvised line from Robert England. The original was, We've got a wonderful show for you tonight, Jennifer. Lights out! England said he couldn't get a handle on how to read that line, but I think it also might have had something to do with the fact that Lights Out was a TV show from the 1940s that was driven off the air by I Love Lucy, and the joke probably didn't resonate with modern audiences. And third, sigh. This is where it begins. For pretty much the rest of the series, Freddy will use the word bitch, snarled with that same aggressive cadence to describe every single female character he speaks to or about, and I don't love it even though I can understand how people might hear England's delivery and think, wow, he gives that word such impressive emphasis. It's a real trademark. 
but still, it's kind of uncomfortable to think of a character who's so overtly misogynistic and hostile as to use gendered slurs pretty much non-stop for four straight movies is a fun, campy genre icon. And that's before we get to his origin story. Max comes in to find Jennifer dangling a good 24 inches off the ground, her head fully embedded in the television set up to the neck, and even though it should be obvious to everyone that this literally cannot be suicide unless Jennifer has the kind of vertical jump that should put her into contention for the WNBA, everyone immediately writes this off as just another exotic form of self-harm. Neil attends her funeral from a distance, ashamed of his inability to help his patients, and the nun from Weston Hills visits him to tell him that he should stop relying on science and trust in religion to save his kids because they're being haunted by an unholy abomination that must be laid to rest. She then disappears as soon as he turns his back to talk to Nancy, and I'm about 99% sure they shot this in front of a blue screen rather than film on location because neither Neil nor Nancy ever interact with the background. Neither Neil nor Nancy. Say that five times fast. After the funeral, Nancy decides Neil's finally desperate enough to believe her, and she tells him she needs to talk to the kids in an unofficial setting. When she does, she describes Freddy to them, and they all instantly recognize him. She then gives a quickie info dump on the events of the first movie, which she places as six years ago, so we're only a year on from part two, but still two years ahead of reality, assuming the first one was sent contemporarily, and tells them that yes, they're the last of the Elm Street kids, but, you know, for real this time. She tells them all that Kristen has the superpower to merge their dreams, and in fact, she's certain they all have some kind of superpower in their dreams based on, um, being the protagonist of the first movie? And she has Neil hypnotize them all so they can explore the shared dream space together. And sure enough, it works very easily. So easily they don't even realize they're asleep at first. Which is bad news for Joey, as he sneaks off to have a tryst with the nurse he has a crush on, and she turns out to be Freddy in disguise. They originally planned to have the actor who plays the nurse, Stacy Alden, wear a facial prosthetic until they saw what it looked like and realized that Freddy with breasts felt more like a fetish than a scare. Instead, Freddy just fully transforms into himself. While Joey is otherwise occupied, the others realize they're dreaming and demonstrate their new powers. Will can walk in his dreams and has wizard abilities. This would have still been a first edition wizard, just to clarify, AD&D second edition didn't come out until 1989. While Kristen gains superhuman agility, Kincaid becomes super strong, because if you've got the stereotype of a short-tempered and sassy black man, why not also make him hulkingly strong and physically well-endowed to boot? And Terran, well... I don't want to overemphasize how shallow and one-dimensional the characterization in this movie is, but poor Jennifer Rubin is forced to deliver the line, In my dreams, I'm beautiful. And bad. While wearing a two-foot-high mohawk and a leather dress with metal studs. Nobody could make this sound convincing. But Freddy's captured Joey, spitting out his own tongue over and over again to tie him to his bed by the wrists and ankles while snarling out, What's wrong, Joey? Feeling tongue-tied. But, you know, Freddy doing terrible dad jokes is a problem of the later sequels, right? For some reason, this allows Freddy to keep Joey trapped in the dream world, which makes no sense by any of the previously established rules for any of the films, and Neil and Nancy are blamed for his descent into a coma. They're both fired by Dr. Carver, head of the Institute, who's played by Paul Kent with even more of that crusty old Dean energy, but as Neil goes to take his stuff out to the car, he spots the nun again and breaks into an old, disused part of the facility to talk to her. 
and then we get the reason this is my least favorite entry in the series. The nun explains to Neil that several decades ago, this wing of the hospital used to be a ward for the criminally insane, and a young woman was quote-unquote locked in here over the holidays, as though the rest of the staff just took their Christmas vacation and left the inmates to fend for themselves that whole time and she didn't get out before they closed up shop. She was supposedly kept hidden while the patients repeatedly raped her, and although she survived the experience, she wound up pregnant with Freddy Krueger. This isn't actually relevant to her important assertion that Freddy's physical remains have to be buried in consecrated ground to destroy him, and it wasn't in Craven's original screenplay, but apparently Chuck Russell just thought it was so cool and edgy that he absolutely needed to wedge it into the story somewhere. And needless to say, I hate literally everything about this. I hate that it trivializes the horrific ordeal of rape into a quote-unquote cool background detail in a movie that's otherwise presented as a big spooky carnival ride. I hate that it de facto absolves Freddy of guilt for his actions by suggesting he was just born evil and couldn't help himself. And I hate that it literally demonizes the mentally ill with its insinuation that people conceived through sexual assault or people with a family history of mental illness are doomed to become figures of supernatural menace. And I hate how fucking stupid it is, because the nun literally goes straight from the patients in this wing were locked away like animals, to oh yes, they were able to stash a volunteer somewhere for several days and take turns sexually assaulting her with nobody noticing. To say nothing of the over-the-holidays thing that makes it sound like Weston Hills was a fucking boarding school that sent all its patients home for Christmas break. This is the part that takes me from this movie has some problems to no seriously I loathe this installment most of all of them and I'm legitimately surprised so few people feel the same way. But I guess you could say that about a lot of the Freddy mythos. Robert England is so charming and campy and downright goofy in his portrayal of Freddy Krueger that it really does disarm the material in ways that it shouldn't. He's an abused child born to a mother traumatized by what we're told is hundreds of rapes, who went on to kill 20 more children in life before slaughtering another 60 or so in death, all out of pure sadistic malice with no redeeming characteristics whatsoever, and everyone acts like he's a funny horror clown that we can all root for. You don't even realize how weird that is until Jackie Earl Haley takes over the exact same character and everyone goes, ew, he's no fun anymore. It's an aspect of the series I'll never understand. Back in the movie, Neil is immediately on board with the let's find Freddy's remains and douse them in holy water, while Nancy is watching over Joey in his hospital room, apparently not being asked to leave after being fired. And as she watches, Joey's shirt opens and the words, come and get him, bitch, are carved into his chest in shallow cuts. She wants to do just that, but again, Neil is all in on the consecrated ground thing, and he wants to find Freddy's body and hollow the hell out of it. But it's not like he was executed. He was killed by a vigilante mob, and they didn't tell anyone where they hid the corpse. So the two of them go to Little Nemo's, a local bar that's so wonderfully ironically named. Little Nemo in Slumberland was a famous newspaper comic that ran for almost 30 years in the early 1900s and featured a character having fantastical adventures in the land of dreams, and meet up with Nancy's father, Donald Thompson. Don is, to put it politely, not doing well. He's turned to drink to cope with Marge's death, and his struggle with alcoholism has gotten him kicked off the force and reduced to working as a security guard to make ends meet. 
He pretends not to know or to care where Freddy's bones are, and to make a bad situation worse, Kristen fought sedation and wound up locked up in the quiet room, drugged to the gills. Nancy goes to help her, and Neil stays behind to rough up Don in a scene that 100% does not ring true because even in his 50s, John Saxon looks like he could kick Craig Wasson's ass without breaking a sweat. But nonetheless, Neil gets through to him and they go to look for Freddy's bones together, after a quick stop at a local church to pick up some holy water and a crucifix. It should be noted that none of this overt Christian proselytizing was in Wes Craven's original screenplay. In his story, the goal was to destroy Freddy's old house so it couldn't serve as a portal between the dream world and the real world, and it was gasoline and road flares they needed. I like that so much better. Nancy can't get in to see Kristen, but she knows she doesn't need to. Kristen can just pull them all into her dreams whenever she falls asleep. She uses hypnosis to get the other kids ready for a dream war, almost as if they themselves are combatants of some sort in that dream war, dream soldiers, if you will, while Don takes Neil to an old junkyard where they buried Freddy's body in a graveyard of rusting metal. From here, things become fast and frenetic very quickly. Despite Nancy's admonition to stay together so they can fight him, Freddy immediately and effortlessly separates the entire group to pick them off one by one in sequences based on their own personal weaknesses. Kristen finds herself back with her neglectful and abusive mother, who's then decapitated by Freddy but who continues to berate her even without a body, but she escapes through the window into Nancy's old house. Taryn, meanwhile, winds up in a back alley where she first uses her beautiful badness to fight Freddy, but then falls victim to him when his fingers become syringes and her needle scars open up like the mouths of baby birds to beg for more in one of the more gruesome and memorable sequences. I've heard people complain that it's somehow unrealistic or even morally wrong to kill her off this way when we saw her kicking the habit in the real world, but as with Jason and his fear of water, it's important to understand that these aren't actually drugs. They're symbolic representations of everything Taryn gets out of using heroin, emotionally as well as physically, and that's a lot harder to say no to than just a simple high. Plus, any addict will tell you that recovery isn't a simple and smooth curve from rock bottom back to health, and you can have relapses and breakdowns and mistakes along the way. I don't think this is a reflection on Taryn's moral character, and I don't think you should blame her for something that's really Freddy's fault. Oh, and originally her head was going to literally explode. From drugs. Thank goodness the special effect looked too stupid to use. Will winds up in a long dark hallway, pursued by a sort of Mad Max torture chamber version of his wheelchair, but he uses his wizard powers to destroy it. Will wearing a robe about three sizes too big that makes him look like Presto from the old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. But when he tries to use those same powers to destroy Freddy, Freddy's just like, nah, and stabs him in the chest. Which seems to defeat the entire purpose of this whole dream superpowers gimmick, because none of their special abilities actually do anything. But I guess it doesn't matter because it gave the interchangeable victims a gimmick to make them more memorable? Again, I have some issues with this movie. Kristen, Nancy, and Kincaid reunite, now the only survivors, and together they go through a freestanding door that appears out of nowhere down into Kruger's old boiler room. And I'll just say it freely, that looks cool as hell, the door floating in midair like that. This film, I give it so much crap for its characterization, I give it so much shit for its story, but visually it is really fucking something. 
Out in the real world, meanwhile, Freddy's bones turn out to be in the trunk of a Cadillac, so we can safely assume the owner of the junkyard was part of the mob because you don't actually leave cars in a junkyard for decades until they rust. You sell them for parts or scrap metal value. That's the entire business model of a junkyard. They get to work burying the remains, and I could quibble about whether someone who isn't a priest could consecrate a burial site, but let's face it, this is not intended to be something that stands up to strict religious scrutiny. Down in the boiler room, Nancy narrowly rescues Joey from falling to his death down a shaft of hellfire, and together the four of them try to fight Freddy face to face. But he's stronger than he's ever been due to the souls he's accumulated. This, again, made much more sense in the original screenplay when he wasn't just taking the Elm Street kids and he was collecting the souls of everyone drawn to his old house over the years, and they can't fight him. He vanishes, though, and it seems like maybe they won't even have to try. Except that because we're now in the no-rules-just-right phase of the story, Freddy has disappeared to animate his own skeleton in the real world to prevent the true threat of having his spirit laid to rest. He emerges fully Harryhausened and with a new knife glove, and kills Don by impaling him on a spar of random junk before beating Neil with his own shovel and burying him alive in the grave intended for him. Freddy then returns to the dream world to take care of loose ends, trapping the survivors in a hall of mirrors and dragging each of them into their own reflections. But Joey's dream power is a supersonic scream that shatters the glass and frees his friends. This catharsis leaves him no longer mute, but as we find out in the next movie, he is still extremely horny. We'll get to it in a couple episodes. Nancy's father appears in the dream in a shower of twinkly lights, telling Nancy that he's crossing over to the other side, and he wanted to tell her how sorry he is for not trusting her. But it turns out to be Freddy in disguise, and when she hugs him, he stabs her in the gut. I don't think this is a great decision. Like Scream, I think there's a lot of power in a continuing protagonist, and Nancy could have been that character, but it was part of Craven's story from the beginning, and it's his creation to bump off. As she's dying, though, Neil recovers in the real world and splashes holy water all over the bones, and Freddy's dream body erupts with shafts of golden light as he's finally consumed and laid to rest. We then cut to Nancy's funeral, and Neil sees the nun one more time. And yeah, it's the ghost of Freddy's mom, and we all kind of knew that, and she's been dead this whole time, and presumably she's off to hitchhike home and leave her sweater in some dude's car. Neil goes to sleep, comforted by the Malaysian dream doll Nancy left behind. But as he slumbers, the light goes on in the model house, and it's hinted that perhaps Freddy isn't gone after all. Which is a very different spin on the ending Craven wrote, where Neil and Kristen talk about Nancy surviving in their dreams as a kind of anti-Freddy who keeps them safe, with the last shot intended to be Nancy back home and casting a watchful eye on the man she loves. But that's Bob Shea for you. He was never going to let this franchise die. The closing credits then roll to Dokken again, this time playing the iconic title song Dream Warriors, and it's hard to explain just how much of a grip this adorably cheesy hair metal song with a soprano chorus that even the lead singer can't do anymore has on the fan base of this series. It's so anthemic that it actually got its own MTV video, where the band used footage from the film intercut with their own performances to make it look like they were defeating Freddy Krueger with the power of rock. And just to give you an idea of how much England was in on the joke, the end of the video is Freddy waking up in his own bed saying, What a nightmare. He's such an adorable ham. And will I hang on to this movie? 
Again, this is part of a box set, so even if the answer is no, it's kind of technically yes, because I'm not just going to frisbee one disc out into the new fallen snow, but unsurprisingly, it's no. I like the set pieces. This is really where they start trying to top themselves again and again with each new installment, with ever bigger and cooler and more inventive dream deaths, but the characters are all one-dimensional. I don't love what they did with Nancy, and that origin story is just a deal-breaker. I revisited it very reluctantly for this podcast, because I know it's such a popular installment, and I know that to whatever extent people are paying attention to me, they're going to profoundly disagree with me on this one, but I don't like Dream Warriors and I don't want to watch it again. And if you want to talk about one-dimensional characters, the trivialization of rape, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror... Well, as you all know, part of the reason I break up my franchise runs with alternating episodes is so that I can get some variety onto the pod. Not everybody wants to hear about the same movies, so if I do a big flashy romp of a horror movie from 1987, I'm gonna want to follow it up with... Hmm. The Gate. A big, flashy romp of a horror movie from 1987. Oh well, guess you have to break even your own rules sometimes, right? So yes, next time is The Gate. See you then.